from our New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And uh, Zach, before we jump into our topic today about uh, why things should or do cost what they cost, um, I'm just sort of curious, like, what you've been up to recently, what you're drinking, um, you know, anything anything fun going on. How's life, man? <laughs> it's good. It's good. Uh it, uh, I will say the, the thing I had um, most recently that was most interesting to me, I had a, a tasting with a, a small distributor here in Seattle that focuses on Australian wine. And I was really surprised at, you know, my my experience, you know, I came into the wine industry at a time when Australian wine basically fell into two buckets. It was either Yellowtail um, or something along the lines of Penfolds Grange. For those of you who aren't familiar with either brand, which impressive if perhaps a little surprising yellowtail is you know very inexpensive very uh large-scale production pretty generic manipulated arguably wine from all over australia and uh actually weirdly penfolds grange is kind of uh also sources from a variety of different sites in uh, australia and it's kind of a you know this sort of very famous very high-end very sort of in-your-face big red blend and um, and my knowledge of Australian wine, um, in terms of having tasted it, not so much you know sort of textbook knowledge, was pretty minimal. Um, and I was really impressed. You know, there's a lot of really interesting things going on. Australia is obviously a continent, and perhaps unsurprisingly, said continent has a lot of different growing regions and climates, and and they produce a lot of different styles of wine. So obviously, you know, some big Shiraz and um, you know some expressions of Cabernet that are pretty pretty full body, but but a lot of more delicate, interesting stuff, including uh, some really nice Riesling, uh, some Semillon, and and I was just you know. It's a it's a wine region that, for a variety of reasons, I haven't thought a lot about and, and haven't tried a lot of, and I was really kind of pleasantly surprised and impressed with what I tasted. And uh, we'll, you know, maybe we'll talk more about Australian wine someday down the road in the podcast. But uh, it was a, it was a fun tasting and and really instructive. Uh, how about you? Sounds cool. Uh, you know, I want to talk about something else. I want to start this new segment on this show called okay. Adam's Pet Peeves. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Isn't that what no. this entire podcast is already? <laughs> No, I was I was thinking though recently, like before we jumped on the podcast, I I drank some really great wine at a wine bar um, here in the city a few nights ago. Um, but the service at that wine bar was really awful. And I want to bring up a scenario and ask you as a service professional how one should handle this because it was incredibly off-putting what it okay. happened. So first of all, I think the person behind the bar was in a in a bad mood in general. They, you know, you never know why someone has an off night. Like I'm not sure. a service professional; I've never been a service professional, so I don't pretend to understand, you know, what it's like to to do that job. I do know, however, that in my job, when I have a bad day, I try not to take it out on my employees. Right? If something's happened at home or um, having issues, but I know that's not always the case. I know that's not always possible. So I could already tell that this person was in a mood. Um, but this is a pretty cool wine bar that's made a name for itself by having lots of interesting wines, including lots of <clears throat> natural wines. Um, but I had brought a, a person to the to the wine bar who, uh, you know, we've covered before. He's a pretty well-known mixologist. So he's not in the, the wine world, but he wanted to, to drink wine. So we decided to go there and, and chat because, you know, I judged a cocktail competition with him a while ago. So we go to this wine bar and the person behind the bar is in a mood. Um, and basically, at one point, we had we gotten a, a glass had been recommended from another person behind the bar, another, you know, Psalm. Um, and 
the wine was crazy. It was definitely natural. Uh, it had like tons of nuts, aromas coming from it. And th that person had said to us like, oh, that's all coming from, from the Brettanomyces, right? Like, mm -hmm. so now I knew there were other things that were impacting this aroma, but my guest didn't, right? He's a mixologist and, you know, wine's not his thing. And he even said that that's why he wanted to go to a wine bar. So the other person who's in a mood comes back to us and basically says, you know, what did you smell? And he answers the question with the answer the previous sommelier had told him. Mm -hmm. And this person says, that's completely incorrect. You don't know what you're talking about. Wow. This is what it smells like. And I was just in shock. And I've heard this experience happen to readers before who've told me like that this has happened to them and this is why they're so intimidated by sommeliers. And I just couldn't believe that I actually finally saw it happen. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, like I know there's so much good and there's so many cool people in this industry. What a fucking bummer. And so then it was actually interesting because he and I got to talk about the experience afterwards based on him being a mixologist. And he's like this, that was my greatest fear. He's like, you know, this person didn't know that I'm in the industry as well. So luckily like, I rolled with it. You know, you weren't trying to impress, you know, a investor in vine pair or whatever. Like I work behind the bar too, man, just like in a different capacity. But it's my biggest fear that at some point one of my employees as well will make a guest feel dumb. And we talked about like why there seemed to have been this, I guess, drive on the part of the person behind the bar, this psalm, to make the guest feel dumb. And I don't really understand why besides, you know, there seems to now be in, in the world of, of drinks in certain establishments this desire to, to one-up someone, you know, to have more knowledge than someone else. But I had always thought that at the end of the day, the purpose of being in the service industry was to make the guest happy. <laughs> so, yeah, like, I, I just – I couldn't believe it. I'm curious, like, what would, what would you have done in that situation? Have you ever been in that situation before? Like, how does one handle that? Because, look, even if he was wrong, aren't you not supposed to correct them? Yeah. I mean, this is a really – oh, man, this is like a fascinating question. And I, I, I have a couple of quick thoughts that I, I will try and share on this. So the first is, like, the, the most obvious one, and, and listeners, I really want you to take this to heart. Like, that – sommelier, that – person serving you and your and your uh, colleague or um, guest is bad at their job and I don't give a shit like what their you know what their certification says if they're you know in on some list of top sommeliers in the country like they're in they are by virtue of that kind of behavior they are not good at their job because you know a thing that has been you know in the same way that like there we, we've come to understand I think in a lot of ways that like you know, publicity or fame or even knowledge are not in this industry, do not necessarily overlap all that well with hospitality and service. They do sometimes, but they're not, those things are not synonymous for one another. And, and I think, you know, there is, there is a real issue with, and you're right, there's a lot of sort of smarter than you attempts at kind of browbeating guests one way or another into, um, into submission, essentially, like, I think there's so I think there's a couple things of, about this. So why is someone doing that? Well, I mean, without knowing the person and without being there in person, I would I would kind of say two things. I'd say one, either there's a lot of insecurity and people, you know, a lot of people don't respond to 
you know, the, their way of dealing with their own insecurity about, you know, their knowledge, their wine is to, you know, sort of punch down, right? So your friend, uh, you know, maybe said something that, that they either, you know, they misremembered what the other psalm had said or the other psalm was wrong or who, you know, who knows. But this person took the opportunity to basically belittle this guest, which, I mean, again, it's like I, my, you guys all listening to this can't tell because I'm here in the studio. But, like, the hair on the back of my neck stood up during the story. Like, it just – it makes me so uncomfortable to hear about this. And, you know, a lot of my job these days is is training people around wine service. And and the thought that someone I trained or someone that worked for me would, would behave like this is, like, it just – it's abhorrent. It's so contrary to the idea. But I also think, you know, there's a specific thing to – to places like, you know, I hate to, I mean, we bag on natural wine all the time, but I'm going to do it again because why not? Um, there's pl- places like, you know, some natural wine bars, you see this, or, or, or certain kinds of venues where there's a very specific focus of the program. And and they, and it kind of feeds into our larger topic for today, they kind of have to justify their their existence and their the pricing to some extent or their selections. And if you, you know, I think I'm sure that that person behind the bar gets a fair number of people who get told, hey, this is a great wine bar, you know, Oh yeah, they feature natural wines, but you know, we, you and I can't even define what natural wine is, let alone you know a lot of other people who are just sort of casual wine drinkers. And so, someone goes in there, they taste these wines that taste nothing like wine they've had before. And some people maybe really resonate with that, but a lot of people are kind of put off by that whole, you know, the flavor and aromatic profile. And as a result, like they come out and they just go like, "This isn't for me." And how do how do you handle that if you're the venue, if you're the the establishment, or you're the the sommelier, or whatever? Some people's instinct is to be like, "No, you're wrong. Here's why you're an idiot." And that you know, if and if someone you know your your yeah, friend I says, just don't yeah, this... get that shit at all, dude." <laughs> well, it's like if your friend says, "Like, oh, this smells like Britannomyces or whatever," that bartender is probably gonna, or sommelier is going to probably be like. No, you're wrong because they know that someone has told that person that Britannomyces is bad or could be bad. And I mean, again, we don't have to get into sort of the the what is what makes for good wine um, because we've covered that a lot and we'll continue to. But but it is a question of like I just it's just this really horrible combative like yeah I just can't imagine ever telling someone that they're wrong in that overt way as a when they're trying to pay me money you know that's like the end of it is right like the customer isn't always right but they're damn sure right in this kind of context where like just be like sure yeah or like oh you know i also smell this or here's something else to think about like you can you can yes and them instead of being like you know go fuck yourself well and i also thought the other thing i thought was very weird about the whole interaction and then we should move on to the actual topic at hand but and and what he had mentioned afterwards as well was that this this person asked what we thought of the wine. He gave a very honest answer. There was no need for a follow-up. There was no need a, for a why do you think. There was no need for a challenge question there. Right? That was actually like the first thing that should never have happened. That, as you're saying, I do see happen a lot at these certain types of bars in which I think the staff can kind of have a too cool for school vibe. And is like, and they almost like want to show you the knowledge, but they're so socially awkward that they don't know how to appropriately show you the knowledge they have or teach you. And they don't realize that probably most people behind sitting at their bar don't really give a fuck about learning. Yeah, for sure. They just want to drink interesting shit. They don't need you to tell them what made it smell this way or that way. Yeah. And so that challenge question then forced my companion to answer, and the answer was wrong. But he was like, he was like, since when did I go to a bar to take a test? You know, he's like, it's one thing if like I challenge my staff all the time to ask them like, why do you think this cocktail tastes this way? Or what do you think is off about this vermouth? Or, you know, what ingredient do you think would go well, uh, you know, 
in in this cocktail that we just made this recipe. So, but I would never challenge the guest. Oh, if the guest told me that they tasted a certain flavor, I would never say, well, do you think that's nutmeg? Because if they said no and it actually was nutmeg, I'd feel like a real dick. Yeah. And I think that was like the thing that just blew me away. Like, yeah, like since when did we become this, you know, this society in which like it was it's that's okay in which we should just make other people feel stupid i mean maybe that's just like what we're doing all the time because there's a person you know who's always on twitter tweeting at everyone that they're idiots but yeah, like true. It's definitely yeah, exactly but it's just not what i want in my bar experience which yeah, brings sure. us to the larger question at hand today which is one of the questions we get a lot here at the at vine pair is what causes that drink to be so expensive they're ordering at that bar Specifically in the world of cocktails, um, wine I think is we could say for another day. It's it's too much probably for us to tackle what makes wine pricey compared to what makes um, you know beer pricey compared to what makes spirits pricey. But a big question we get and we've gotten a lot recently is why are we suddenly seeing lots of twenty dollar cocktails? Now my easy answer to this as an economist is because people will pay for them, mm-hmm. but. Is there a real reason or, Zach, is it just because people pay for them? Well, you know, I, I think as you know, your your economic inclination is not wrong. I mean, much of this is the market will bear what the market will bear. And once you break a, you know, for a long time, you know, the it, it was in this industry, it was seen as, you know, even in a place like New York, certainly outside of New York, the $15 cocktail was seen like as a basically an, an unbreakable uh sort of ceiling like you couldn't charge more than $15 for a cocktail and because people wouldn't pay it didn't matter what you put in I mean with a few very rare exceptions so I think a couple of things that have changed are 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 this one is bars have figured out for better or for worse how to create value in their cocktail programs without necessarily adding value in the traditional sort of ways we think about so you think about what what do we think about it when we define a sort of a the concept for a craft bar of one form or another. Well, we probably expect that they're using, you know, all fresh juice, right? Well, fresh fruit and then juicing it is expensive. And now in most cities you can buy, you know, fresh squeezed juice that's delivered to your bar, you know, every day or two and and maybe you get around that. But obviously that has costs as well. We're expecting that the, you know, that there's a lot of possibly house-made things like syrups and tinctures and bitters and infusions and all those things. And and all that stuff takes time. And, you know, (laughs) when you're a bar, you got to pay someone to do that work and probably have to pay the bartender. And the bartender expects to make more than minimum wage for their time, Um, you know, even if they're not getting, especially if they're, you know, it's not tipped time or whatever. So, So there are a lot of those costs that go into it. But bars have also realized that, you know, if you put the right sorts of things on a menu, that you can actually make a drink for you know, you can make a drink for a less cost to the bar, but still charge a lot of money for it because it comes across as being a very elaborate production. And I mean, this is a restaurant trick generally. It's not just a bar trick. Um, you know, you, things that take a lot of time or seem intimidating to you or me to do at home, you know, I, are you and I going to sit around in our, you know, apartments or houses making, you know, 15 different syrups? So, you Hell know, no. But, but, <laughs> no. But, and and we don't have the time or the storage space or the ingredients or the know-how. But, like, those things are not actually hard to do. They're just – you just need staff for it. You need storage space. You need the ingredients. You need the – you know, you need the time. It's the same way that, you know, kitchens can cook – you know, can prepare dish. You know, can, why? Why? For example, like I love to cook. You love to cook. I can't imagine you or I are ever going to make like sweetbreads at home, even though I really love them. But that's like a three day process. I'm, and frankly, yeah, I don't have the time. 
Um, and so, is it really um, a three day process? Well, if you do it really correctly, because you've got to like milk rinse it, and it's I mean it's a lot of work, and, oh, or it's okay, a lot of yeah, time. No. But like again, like could I do it? Sure, but I'm never going to make that choice. Like I like them, but I'm happy to pay someone else for that. So, so there's there's that. I think the other big thing, and this is I don't know if this is this is my sense. I don't I don't have data for this. So so you know, folks out there, tell me I'm wrong, please. I think there has been a shift in bars in general, especially, you know, sort of your higher-end cocktail bars, away from using sort of what we would consider typical sort of well spirits in any of the cocktails on a list, right? So where you used to sort of get away with in, in a lot of places saying like, oh, this drink, you know, this drink on my cocktail menu, even in a pretty nice bar, is made with rye. And I'm not going to specify what rye, right? It's just going to be my well rye. And I'm getting a really good deal on that because I'm probably buying it by the case from my distributor. They're probably giving me a sweet deal and I fly through it. Now it's like people want to know what what do you, you know, what is in your well? What are you pouring? And if you're of a certain caliber bar, you know, you got to pour a recognizable spirit. You know, maybe you're even trying to emphasize stuff that's local stuff that's craft or or at least you're trying to do something a little more interesting than pouring your sort of really large scale i mean the the well rye in like every bar in seattle for five years was old overhold because it was super cheap and it was fine it's good nothing wrong with it but now like you can't like everyone kind of knows it the secret's out and everyone you know even in the drinking community kind of is sick of it or wants something else so you have to switch over to something um you know maybe a little bit more uh, recognizable, which often has more cost to it. And and people want sort of spirits and ingredients that they recognize on a menu. So, you know, I think that's it. But I, I do think, you know, again, like you said, some of it definitely comes back to like, people will pay 20 bucks. So we'll charge 20 bucks. I mean, I think, yeah, because I think it's interesting because like the biggest complaint I get a lot is like, look, I'm happy to pay eight bucks for a cocktail, 10 bucks for a cocktail, 12 bucks for a cocktail. But once they start getting up into 16, 20, look, I mean, the aviary has cocktails that go all the way up to $38 for those done of the aviaries. This is a really, really famous bar in New York and also Chicago. Um, it's, it gets insane for people. And I just don't understand how to justify spending that. I know how to justify spending that kind of money on food. When it gets that expensive, some somewhat, but even even then, actually not. You know, like for for really expensive steak, it's I'm like, well, I can make a pretty fine steak. <laughs> it's it's when it gets that expensive, I'm kind of like, is this just because that's what we've all become accustomed to at this point in time? And this is pretty much across the country that I think most cocktails now are over ten bucks easily. Yeah, um, I would agree. You know, I I don't know. I mean, is it just because everything rises? Like, you know, again, this is. I said we weren't going to talk about this, but we're going to because it's a really good example, so I'm going to use it. Um, I had a sommelier of a, a, a pretty fancy restaurant here in New York City say, you know, she buys this really amazing uh, white wine for nine bucks a bottle, right, uh, at cost. Or no, no, it's six. Sorry, six from Italy. It's amazing. So normally, like, what would you do at that cost, right, Zach? You would you'd charge it by the glass, what, maybe one and a half, maybe two? Oh, you mean what would I charge for a glass of that? Yeah, like if I was paying six, if I was paying six bucks a bottle for that wine, I mean, venue dependent, but I'd probably charge six or seven dollars a glass. You know, right, you, charge, okay. you charge basically the for glass pours, the cost, of the, bottle, right. the cost of the bottle. Right. So it's an amazing wine. She doesn't not want to sell it. She right. could not. So she so she charged double the cost of the bottle. Right. So she was charging yep. twelve. She couldn't sell it. She marked it up to eighteen. It flies. Like so again, maybe I mean it. Maybe it is all economics, right? Like she had she had customers who thought the wine wasn't good at twelve dollars, even though she thinks it's an incredible wine. It just happens to be from an area of Italy that like a lot of people don't know of, and sure. so she gets this incredible deal on the bottles, and she obviously now buys a ton of it because she's selling it for eighteen dollars yeah. a glass. But like that's 
crazy to me. And yeah. maybe it is just all an economics question. And we should really be talking to a professor of economics at this point in time as to why people are willing to pay these insane prices. Maybe it is that, you know, I go to the aviary and I expect it's so fancy that I should pay that much for a cocktail. But I think what I'm getting, what we really hear is that because of those types of places, people are even getting expensive cocktails at places that don't really have any right to charge that much for a cocktail. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's there's this weird sort of inflationary effect where you know, once, when, like I said, you know, with that sort of $15 threshold that used to exist, certainly here in Seattle, and I think in a lot of cities, once places started kind of breaking that, then all of a sudden you saw everyone's, you know, sort of cocktail list, cocktail prices went, you know, kind of all jumped up, right? They saw, oh, the even the great cocktail bar, you know, a block from here is charging $15, $16, $17, $18 for a cocktail. So instead of charging $10 for a Manhattan, now I can get away with charging 12 because I'm still cheaper than the, the place around the corner. But like, I'm maybe making the exact same drink and I may be paying the same cost of goods as, as I was before. But you know, hell, if I can charge 12 instead of 10, I'm going to. I think part of it like, too is, wait, go ahead. Well, I'm saying like, I, I guess I kind of understand if you like, you told me it's incredible ingredients, right? If you're using like some of the best vermouth that's available, like to make a Negroni, for example, I get that it's Campari is the general ingredient, right? But then if you're using high-end vermouth, like, you know, as opposed to super, super cheap vermouth and you're using really high-quality gin as opposed to, you know, well gin, then I, I can somewhat see that's going to make a difference in how the cocktail tastes and I should probably pay 12 or $15 for it instead of 9 But if I'm having a Negroni made with basically well product, I should pay 8 or 9 bucks for that fucking Negroni. Yeah. But that's not the case. No, well, I think, you know, some of this I think also is kind of this just there's this really complicated question that that comes into play here when we're talking about sort of the economics of this industry generally, right? And again, you know, man, I don't didn't want to turn this into an economics podcast, but you're all stuck with it. Sorry. Yeah, that's um, kind of interesting. <laughs> I hope so. So what I was going to say is, you know, I think one of the really challenging things is when you open a bar, right? So so it's not restaurants so much where there's a different economic model. But think about a place like the aviary, right? Or or even uh, you're just a, a bar that's not going to be making, you know, that's not going to have a ton of food. They're not going to be driving check averages up through, you know, meals and stuff like that. That they're really their business model is I'm going to sell booze, right? Well, that's great business because you make a lot more money selling booze than you do on food. But the downside is people, especially in those cocktail bars, they stay for fucking ever. They linger over their drinks and they have like two, right? And so if you're only selling two cocktails to a, to a person who's going to spend two hours in your bar, you damn well better get $40 on that check to make it even vaguely worth your while. Like you are not going to be to be racking up the kind of check average that even a halfway decent neighborhood restaurant will because, you know, those people are eating. And and even though the food part of it isn't necessarily going to generate a ton of actual profit, you're still going to sell just as much alcohol and you're, and you're bolstering sort of your, your just raw intake of cash. You know, you still got the same rent either way. Uh, and you got to See, that, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. This, this example makes sense to me in terms of a, of a cocktail bar like Death & Company or, um, you know, insert – high-end, pre-prohibition, speakeasy-style cocktail bar in the blank, yeah. you know, here. Or even, like, the Polynesian, that, like, we're talking to Brian. Like, yeah, think that about makes their sense drinks, to like, me there. That makes sense they to take, me there. But their stuff, too, also, like, the other part of this, like, those drinks take forever to make. Like, they are labor-intensive on the bar staff itself. And again, you know, like, when I, like, my first restaurant, basically, first restaurant job was, like, a god-awful, like, super high, uh, like, fast-paced um, you know, sort of speed bartending spot. 
and you know, my the only thing they cared about the the people who hired me was like how how quickly can you basically make a bunch of you know drinks that are a combination of spirit and mixer. You know, can you how quickly can you switch between making a Jack and Coke and a gin and tonic? Um, and the answer was pretty fast, which is why I got the job. But like. That's a very different kind of business model. And there you can get away with charging, you know, whatever, you know, you can charge eight bucks a, a drink because you're selling so many of them. But if you're, if you are Death & Co or you're, you know, the Polynesian or you're the Aviary or pick one of a thousand other bars in this country that, that have a similar model, you, I mean, your, your drinks take a minute at least for, to make. And you're, you're not, you know, especially we now like those places to not be super crowded. We want them to be sort of quiet and dignified and you want to be able to talk and you want to be able to savor your cocktail and like those are all really lovely things but man that is a really tough way to make money because again you're just going to sell two drinks to people they're going to take off or they're going to have a drink before they go to dinner and if if your drink is twelve dollars like you, you you're going to close like i just i hate to tell you but like you know you're paying rent not just in new york or in seattle but man you're paying rent in detroit or whatever like you can't get away with with that kind of business model for very long, unless you have some other thing that's making it work. And, and for cocktail yeah. bars, there isn't another thing. That's the only thing. Right now, I guess this, this all makes a lot more sense to me. And I'm hoping it's, it makes a lot more sense to the listeners as well. I mean, I think, you know, you have to take into account at a lot of these fancy cocktail bars, the amount that the real estate costs, the amount that that decor costs, the amount that up, the upkeep, the staff, et cetera, costs in order to go into you know, you getting to hang out there and hang out there longer than you, you know, should hang out. <laughs> I mean, yes. if we're being honest, right? Like I'd always heard that a bar hopes that you only spend what? Is it 20 minutes per cocktail, 15 minutes per cocktail, something like that before ordering the next one? Now, I'm sure that every single person who's listening to this podcast right now is gasping that I think that if you're at a cocktail bar for an hour, you should order three, but that three to four, but that's actually what most cocktail bars would hope you would do. And at that number, they would probably be able to offer the cocktails for cheaper. You would go home more inebriated, which may not be good for you. <laughs> or sooner. Yes, or sooner. But that's actually even better for them, right? That's why McDonald's yeah. has hard seats. McDonald's wants you not to stay. They want you to yeah. eat very quickly and leave. They want to turn tables. And so does the cocktail bar. We just, I think, haven't thought about the cocktail bar as a restaurant before. And that's actually what it is, and it needs to do its own turns. And therefore, if you are going to sit and only have one to two drinks per hour, then yeah, they need to, it needs to be worth their while. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Well, and it's also, you know, like I think we all kind of – this is just a, a thing for, for most of us, right? Like most of us are early – I mean maybe it's different for, for people even younger than us who are, who are sort of recently of legal age in this country. But for most of us, like we get our start drinking legally in legal establishments, you know – end of college if we're in college, you know, so 21, 22, whatever. And what are the places most people go to? Well, depends on where you live, but you're probably going to, you know, your neighborhood tavern, you're going to a dive bar, you're going somewhere where there's like one or two bartenders, there's like 60 people in there. And again, whatever you're ordering, you're ordering a beer and a shot or you're ordering, you know, like I said, the the gin and tonics and, and vodka sodas that I was making when I was 21. You're not ordering fancy craft cocktails, but our perception of what is a bar, how a bar works is formed at that first experience with one. So most people who don't have restaurant experience or aren't connected to this industry, they walk into any bar, right? Doesn't matter how fancy or not, and they still have that model in their mind and they they don't notice that some of these cocktail bars have four bartenders behind a bar and four servers for 50 people. 
Like those people all have to get paid. And that's why your cocktail costs so much. Those people, because if the bar is busy, they need every last one of those bartenders making drinks because, each of, as I said, each of those drinks takes a minute or more to make. They have lots of complex ingredients. It requires a lot of knowledge to be able to make those drinks correctly, you know, technical knowledge and, of course, you know, knowledge of um, of the recipes themselves and then the physical uh, skill to make them correctly. Like these are not easy things to do. And I think we all tend to sort of think like, oh, whatever, making drinks is easy. You know, mm-hmm. I, I will say this, you know, this it's is not, not to... easy. I've tried it. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think I make a, a few pretty good drinks, but it's not easy. Yeah. And, you know, I had this conversation with actually my wife was just traveling for business and she came back and she was complaining about how the bar at the hotel, uh, which is a fairly nice hotel, but not like, you know, it was in a smaller city. So not like a, you know, it wasn't like a major city for cocktails, but she was complaining that like the hotel bartender was very nice, but just not very good at making drinks. And she was sort of like, well, why is it like, how come this person is like, why does this bar have people who like don't know how to make a, a good Manhattan? And I said, well, you know, like the deal is like the people who are passionate about making great drinks don't want to work at a hotel bar, right? Yep. They want to go work at a fancy yep. cocktail focused bar because they want to be able to, to, you know, experiment, explore, utilize that technique. And, you know, what the bartender, you know, coming back to our conversation before we got into this topic, what, what a great bartender at another kind of, at, at a not craft cocktail bar can do for you is, is be an enjoyable person to talk to, be friendly, be welcoming, remember you, all those things are great. They may not be able to make you the best drink in the world, but like if that's your goal, then you know what? Yeah, you're going to be paying 18, 20, 25 bucks a cocktail exactly. and just exactly. deal with it. Like that's the deal. That's you want to, you know, it's just like we don't expect to walk into, you know, people probably don't write to you and complain about, man, you know, I went to this three star Michelin restaurant and I can't believe how much the food costs. Like, of course, you go to the top of the restaurant industry and you're going to pay a lot of money. Like that's just the deal. I mean, you're partially paying for reputation, sure, but you're also paying for a ton of service. You're paying for someone to be there the second you get up to pull your table out or fold your napkin for you or escort you to the bathroom. You're paying for every step in the way for that experience to be, you know, sort of uh, guided. And cocktail yeah. bars aren't exactly the same but again if you're, if you're going into if you're going yeah if you're going into a really high-end cocktail bar or a place that has those you know pretensions you are paying for that degree of service and and that special experience and if you don't want that like i know this from and I, you know probably better than i do there's still lots of bars in new york city and everywhere else where you can go get a beer and a shot for cheap or yeah, relatively and a, or cheap. just just a solid drink yeah it doesn't have to yeah. be the the best mix you know high-end you know mixology that you've ever seen it just it's a good drink but i yeah. think but if you do want if you do want that high end that's what it costs man that's just the price yeah. of doing business in this country these days like you know or you know go like we did and fly to europe and then the drinks are a lot cheaper and still great but you gotta, <laughs> get, you gotta get yourself there yeah i mean i do think look you know moral of the story too is at the end of the day you, you have to start thinking about cocktails like food and you know going out to a restaurant if you're going to go to a cocktail bar and you pay a lot for a drink and you don't like the drink your dollar can leave. And if you think the drink's not good and you paid a lot for it, first of all, you can say something in a polite way. Yeah, and then way. the bartender can tell you you're wrong, right? right. Isn't that well, what they yeah, do? <laughs> you know, you, you could – again, but that's a place that I will not go back to, right? Like you can, say, you can say something and if it's a place that cares about hospitality, which it should if it's doing all the other things that we're saying, right? It's trying to be high-end and it's caring about decor and service, et cetera. Then if you didn't like the drink, you should be able to say you didn't like the drink and they should make you something else. And if you didn't like the drink, they don't do that. You know, you can do what you do at a normal restaurant, which is, you know, not go there. And then like, well, a lot of people do is leave a really nasty Yelp review. Although I don't agree with that, but you could yeah. do that as well. You know, you could go definitely, on Yelp. definitely 
first give the rest the bar or restaurant a chance to fix things. So explain what you didn't like. Exactly. Say, hey, Don't you know, just go complain on Yelp first. Please. No, no, no. Or on your podcast. Well, you yeah. can do that. <laughs> well, maybe. But you know, hopefully, moral of the story is you know, drink good drinks and uh, you know, be you know, be a little bit more choosy when it comes to where you want to drink because yeah, there are a lot of places that are expensive. So make sure you're going to a place that's great, which you know, yeah, there are a lot of great places out there. That's an excellent point too. Like, like I said, there is this sort of unfortunate side effect of the like craft cocktail thing is that like a lot of places have decided they can get away with charging more, you know, less than those places, but more than they used to. And so, yeah, you have to be discerning as a, as a drinker and say, Hey, you know, is this bar really making great drinks? Do I need to be spending $18 on a cocktail here? Or am I better off either going to the dive bar around the corner and spending 10 bucks or going to the craft, you know, really high end craft cocktail bar two blocks away and spending 20 bucks. Like maybe that's a better, either of those is a better economic choice than, you know, sort of paying almost as much and getting nowhere near as uh, high quality a drink. But, you know, that's up to everybody. And sometimes those craft cocktail bars are real hard to get into. So you got to settle totally. for uh, for the leftovers. Well, hopefully we, you know, have answered a lot of questions today on what it means, why drinks can be so damn expensive. And, uh, you know, we'll be, we'll be back at you next week with more knowledge. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. And, uh, Zach, I will talk to you next week. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you'd rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is recorded in New York City at Vine Pair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patry, and the show is produced by Zach Jawal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Gridberg. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.